Welcome investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamotko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, podcast listeners, to the Absolute Return Podcast. On this special edition, we have State of the Markets 3 with myself, Julian Klamachko, G, also known as SPAC Guru, Christy, also known as SPAC Insider, and Jeff, also known as SPAC Warrants. We have an in-depth discussion on the state of the blank check market. Topics include what to make of high redemption rates and low-float meme stock short squeezes, how are IPO terms evolving, what will be the future of PSTH and the SPARC structure? Lawsuits, the SEC, and the future of SPACs, and more. So please enjoy our lively discussion on State of the Markets 3. All right, let's kick off the latest installment of State of the Markets. I'm super excited to get into the weeds today on SPACs with our residence experts. We have SPAC Guru, we'll call him G today. Uh, Christy from SPAC Insider and Jeff from SPAC Warrants. How are you guys doing today? Can you hear me loud and clear? Hey, Julian, I can hear you. I can hear you. Sounds great. Good morning, everybody. I hear you fine. Okay, awesome. So the format, I want to keep the discussion to 45 minutes and then open it up for 15 minutes uh, for questions and end this at the top of the hour. So some things that are on my mind that I've tabled as discussion topics today. First would be IPO terms for SPAC IPOs. Definitely improving over the past six months. We've really seen a dramatic swing from terms that favor the sponsor to now terms that are much more favorable to the investors. So that's a major discussion point. Another discussion point is highly elevated redemption rates going into deal votes. We've seen some as high as 97%, which is somewhat comical. But nonetheless, that is a dynamic of the current state of the market. And with that redemption dynamic is this really interesting trading of low float highly redeemed DSPACs that have turned into meme stocks, given they have this low float, they're easy to manipulate, and people think that there could be a short squeeze. So it's some of that GameStop and AMC type effect happening in DSPACs, which is, I think, fascinating and has brought some interest back into the market albeit more for speculation, but nonetheless, it's nice to have some people come back into the market in what seems to be like a six-month bear market. Another discussion is the existence of so-called anchor investors to get IPOs done, where sponsors are selling off their uh, free sponsor shares. In addition, another dynamic is that sponsors giving free shares to shareholders when it comes up to the redemption vote if they agree not to redeem. So I've tabled those major topics for discussion today. So let's kick things off. I want to start off with IPO terms. I put out a tweet this morning highlighting a new IPO today, which was 
gig Capital Five. And so this team has had a number of issues in the market. And they filed their first S1 six months ago, back in March. And the details of that, it was pretty sponsor friendly and not the best for investors, which was really the case back in the first quarter. We didn't get much for warrant coverage. Overfunded trusts went the way of the dodo bird and everything had a two-year term. But six months later, they got the IPO done and their amended S1, they cut the amount raised by nearly 50%. They overfunded the trust to 1010. They increased warrant coverage from one-third of a warrant to a full warrant decreased the term to just 12 months, albeit with extensions that they do have to pay for by depositing 3.3 cents per month into trust. And if you look at recent IPOs, nearly every single one has an overfunded trust unless they have these so-called anchor investors, which we'll address at a later date. So I just wanted to get your guys' thoughts on these IPO terms. Jeff, why don't we start with you? I did see you had a comment this morning on how you liking the increased warrant coverage. No, absolutely. And good morning, everybody. Um, no, I, I will say, uh, if you look back on our, our earlier conversations, there was a lot of questions whether or not warrants were going to, I think somebody might be reverbing. That might be you, Julian. <laughs> it might be echoing. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, no, if you look back on our earlier conversations around March, you know, this, this was a, a hot topic, whether or not warrants were going to uh, go out of favor. In this case, and and in I got to say, quite a few cases from the S one to the S one A to the prospectus, um, we're having to be extremely diligent to go in and make sure the terms are correct at the point of prospectus because they are changing, uh, and, and they are becoming far more favorable. Uh, you mentioned the gig capital this morning. I think one I changed this morning was the HHG capital uh, went from one warrant to one warrant and a right. So it seems like that's the trend right now, which which typically is the case when the markets have been under this much pressure. So no, I I think that's a that's a pretty pretty astute comment you made this morning and an observation on the gig capital. I'd also add on top of that that we're also seeing that the deadline to complete these deals has also decreased on almost all of these. Uh, in a lot of cases, we're seeing the the guys who came out originally with the S ones at twenty four months. We're seeing this drop to 12 months, 15 months, and, and that's a that's a pretty normal thing, too. And in a lot of these, we're also seeing the IPO value drop. So they're needing less money, offering more of a kicker. It all is very reflective of the climate, I think, which is positive for retail. Yeah, and you mentioned a couple of key points. I know the flavor of the month a few months ago over the summer was, oh, what's the SEC doing? They're going after SPACs with the warrant disclosure and warrant accounting. And it created a lot of drama, ultimately turned out to be Tempest in a teapot. I believe that that whole thing is done. There continues to be you know, talk of increased disclosure, but thus far, no additional actions from the SEC, which is nice. But I mean, additional disclosure is always a great thing to see. And we are seeing more SPAC IPOs with right as well. And that just makes it more tasty for the IPO or unit investor. Another dynamic is the declining terms. And I was just talking with a sponsor a couple of days ago about some of these SPACs coming out with 12 months. And man, it's basically impossible to close a deal or look for a deal, get it 
definitive and then close it within 12 months. But nonetheless, a lot of these do have extension options. However, they are dependent on the sponsor kicking in additional capital into the trust to really reward investors. So I view that as returns going up for IPO investors. Christy, what are your thoughts on new SPAC IPOs? Um, so that's a lot. <laughs> well, a couple things. It's it's always interesting participating in these calls because you guys sort of come at it, come at it from the perspective of investors, whereas I sometimes look at it from the perspective of the sponsors. And you have to kind of consider also, you know, who are doing these deals that need to be overfunded, that need to be, you know, ha- have additional sort of you know goodies attached via rights or additional warrant coverage. Um, or even, you know, these uh, anchor investors or QIBs, whichever you want to call it. You know, in, in my mind, it's, you know, why, why, do, why do sponsors want to do that? Why do they want to give away their promote? Like, why, like, it is very expensive, these terms for them. And you have to sort of look at um, the teams that are doing them. They're certainly in, in arbitrage play, for sure, with the terms. But is that good or bad for the general SPAC market? I mean, ideally... You want a solid team. You want something that is going to trade up significantly at announcement um, because it's a really good deal. So it's sort of, you know, are we kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater by, you know, sacrificing good quality teams for expensive terms? Yeah, that's a really good point. And I found one dynamic that I noticed is even teams that had either a really good track record in business or others that have had very successful SPACs in the past. For example, Kensington Capital and Justin Miro, he came out with Kensington Capital Acquisition 5, which in fact isn't their fifth, so it has an odd name. But nonetheless, they did have their past Kensington Capital, the first uh, edition, which did uh, do the one of the best SPAC deals that we've seen of last year, which is the uh, QuantumScape deal, right? And that was tremendously successful. It's trading around north of $26 per share. And that new Kensington Capital IPO needed to come out with three quarters of a warrant. And it did get downsized. And also, the term is only 12 months. So even it seems like pretty good quality sponsors, repeat sponsors or high quality businessmen are or businessmen and women are needing to offer these additional terms. And that's just the state of the market. And because there's so much out there and investors are like, well, why would I support you at $10, two years and a third of a warrant when there's so much else out there, so much product out there that's trading at a discount. So gee, I wanted to get your thoughts on the IPO market and what you think of it. Yeah, thanks, Julian. Um, so listening to you and Jeff and Christy, it's interesting because we all have different perspectives. You're, you're obviously in the arbitrage. You, you want the goodies. Jeff uh, Spec Warrants wants some warrants. And Christy's looking at it from this, the side of the sponsor. And I have a unique perspective that I can actually, like I say, playing chess against myself. I wore many of these different hats, so I can kind of dissect it in a different way. And you know, the things that come to mind are, are just old Wall Street cliches that we all get sick of and we hear them all the time. But the, re- the reason we hear them all the time is because they're true. And the first thing that, that comes to mind is money goes where it's treated best. And 
just because you're good or you've had a great past, there's, there's other economic things that are going on in the world, globally and domestic, that could adversely affect the SPAC traders' um, world based on margin calls or if they see something that's the new shiny object that they look at SPACs as maybe some dead money or some something kind of lagging where they see some faster action, they'll, they'll just puke the SPACs to jump into the new hot thing. So, so that, that's one of the things that comes to mind. And the, the second thing I think of is um, we, we trade the market we have, not the market we want. And if you, if you just took SPACs and you looked at them over the course of the last 12 months, we've had very, very distinct cycles that if you put a timeline and you, you could draw parameters of everything from euphoria and um, you know, irrational exuberance to grossly oversold, the bastard stepchild of asset classes, and, and everything in between. So all of those things kind of culminate to why we have these, and thank you for hosting these fantastic you know, state of the markets. So what we're looking at now, and we saw a Tuttle Management this morning post that the two specs that, that came out today were both overfunded. You know, it's just a different time and, and the good sponsors adapt and they, and, and they, they adopt to the, new, to the new norm. And it almost seems like sometimes they're, they're trailing indicators um, because as we know from the day that these are put to paper and go through comments and get the S1 and what it started as by the time it's, it goes to funding or they go around with the hat in the hand to raise money to the time the IPO comes out, to the time of, you know, talking about possible targets, you know, a, a lot of these cycles could come and go in between. So I think that what we're seeing now is a reflection of the past, of, of what some of these sponsors had to do. And at the same time, I think that some of these good names are making um, deals to, to get maybe some of the work and maybe some of the load off their desk because they are looking to other deals, other targets, maybe other industries or other specs. And, you know, they just want to keep the assembly line going as the analogy that Christy gave us some months back about the, the backlog from everything from SEC filings to pipe investors. So I know there's a lot of to unpack there, so I'm going to go quiet. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, Accelerate, one of Canada's most innovative and fastest growing alternative investment solution providers. With a suite of institutional caliber alternative ETFs for investors seeking diversification and long-term performance, the Accelerate Arbitrage Fund, symbol ARB on the TSX, is the world's first SPAC-focused ETF with a diversified portfolio of SPAC and merger arbitrage opportunities in an easy-to-use, low-cost ETF. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund ETF trades under the symbol ARB on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Find out more at AccelerateShares.com. Yeah, one thing about recent IPOs that I did want to touch on, and you can spot these, they stick out like a sore thumb because they always trade very, very poorly. <laughs> if you see st- uh, SPACs without so-called anchor investors, qualified institutional buyers, with an overfunded trust, they typically trade up if they don't have them. But if they do, then they typically trade down. Now, why is that? Well, I mean, they call them anchor investors, but if you analyze the day one trading volume in which sometimes over half the float gets sold, it kind of gives you a sense that they're not so much of an 
anchor if they're selling out on the first day. But these SPAC IPOs, and I made my thoughts public on these, <clears throat> that utilize anchor investors in order to do a deal that perhaps couldn't be done on market terms. So sponsors are giving a, a significant amount of their promote shares, generally around 25% to anchor investors. And they typically don't even get any agreement from these anchor investors to not redeem come the deal vote or not even not sell their shares. So the anchor investors are free to do whatever they want. Many do plow out the first day, which is why you see substantial selling pressure on SPAC IPO units on day one that feature these anchor investors because many are in fact selling out on day one, 980, 990, just trying to clip these founder shares. And my opinion is that once they split, the SPAC commons will probably be the lowest trading and uh, a number of dynamics make it difficult or will make it difficult to complete a business combination for those. Number one, they do have like, they'll have a low common share trading price, which makes a pipe at $10 even more challenging than it is these days. And the pipe market is super challenging unless you're willing to lead it as a sponsor. And many lack that uh, capital to write, say, $50 million checks. And the other thing is, I think they don't necessarily attract the right set of shareholders, i.e. these types of shareholders are probably all looking to redeem. And when a deal is announced, the share price gets pinned at like 984 as you know many sell. So the amount of shares that need to turn on a $200 million IPO, that's like 20 million shares just to get it above net asset value and pre prevent those massive redemptions. Then at the back end, another challenge is, and we've seen this come into play is sponsors having to give up shares to complete a deal, whether it's to get the definitive agreement signed with the target company or to give up founder shares to shareholders in order to not redeem. So those are my thoughts on the anchor investors. And I wanted to see what you guys think. So I will open the floor to whoever wants to take it. I'll take a stab at it. So, you know, it's. I would say uh, the anchor investor structure is um, it's even disliked by the bankers that are doing them. I mean, it's it's a it's a structure of last resort, um, and that is because you know these teams that are doing them they really 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 want to be out in the market. They, you know, if you ask any team and you know, whether it's good times or bad, they will say they have you know actionable opportunities that they need to be out in the market for, and that's why they're sacrificing founder shares for it. Um, I, I agree with you. Uh, you know. Nobody seems to like these for all the reasons you said, Julian. Um, you know, more often than not, you know, not not even just selling the units at IPO, but like sometimes what you'll see is, um, you know, once the unit splits, that's when they dump the common, right? Because they want to keep the warrants and the founder shares. Um, but, you know, ha having having said that, the amount of founder shares that some of these anchor investors are getting, it's not it's not really meaningful. You know, like maybe they'll get, 25,000 or something like that. But for a very large institution, I mean, that's, it's not really a meaningful amount. Um, so it, it's interesting because more often than not, sometimes the anchor investors aren't named and you have to sort of wonder, you know, who's participating. Um, but yeah, nobody, nobody, nobody likes the structures. Um, I will say also though, because I've been tracking them, um, I will say that uh, in the past two weeks, I've seen a slowdown in those. They were far more prevalent in August. Um, 
it does seem like people are moving away from it. Um, I will also note that, you know, because I track the yield to maturity, uh, we have a yield to maturity tracker. It has started to heal a little bit. Um, and, you know, so what does that mean? It means terms could be changing. You know, we do tend to think of that as a leading indicator. Um, so while terms are very generous right now for investors, um, you know, as we all know, SPAC market cyclical um, can't rain forever. Uh, we might be in a, a, a healing moment. And, um, you know, maybe that perhaps that's why we're seeing less of the anchor investor type IPOs. Um, but I, I think also, just as a last point, um, it's a strange structure to have right now while there is additional SEC scrutiny. And I think everybody sort of recognizes that and, and they're trying to move away from it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I find it interesting how you mentioned that these sponsors are claiming uh, a lot of actionable opportunities. But if you look at what's announced business combinations, there has not necessarily been a ton of action by sponsors out in the market. I see about uh, nine business combinations announced this month, which is significantly lower than what you would expect given, you know, close to 600 SPACs out there and you know, well over 400 looking for a deal. I think I, I crunched the numbers a while back and we should be seeing at least one business combination announced per day if all are going to be successful. And we've seen far less than that this month, uh, let alone um, many of the pipes being announced have either a forward purchase agreement from the sponsor or substantial sponsor involvement. So I think that's probably a, a major hangup in their uh, in a very very competitive market. What are your thoughts? Well, well, first off, uh, September is generally kind of a weird month, right? We've had a, a number of successive uh, Jewish holidays, and uh, hence the market's been really really quiet. Um, I think that is is definitely playing into it for sure. The other thing too is you know usually you have to look at you know what what did the IPO calendar look like three to four months ago because that's when you generally see. A wave of announcements, and if you look back, I mean, that was right in the midst of the SPAC slowdown due to the SEC uh, warrant accounting issues. And so, you know, if you if you kind of go by that curve, like we only had I think thirteen or fourteen IPOs back in April, and like a, a very small amount in May. And so, therefore, um, I think that's also playing into why we're not seeing as many announcements right now. It could mean that um, as we get further out into the into the fall, October, November, December, you might start to see more. Um, but I think um, you have to take into account where were we three or four months prior when you're looking at combinations. Oh, go ahead, G. Do you have something to say? Yeah. Um, one of the things I'd like to say is I, I agree with what Christy's saying. Another thing that I was actually talking to someone about the other day is We've we've seen a pretty big slowdown, I think, also as far as 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 rumors and possible target candidates from you know all the usual suspects over at Reuters and Bloomberg. I'm just wondering if you know if some of these sponsors have have really tightened down on on the leaks or during this really tough spec time, if some of them all kind of took a little bit of a timeout and pushed things back a little bit. Um, we did see the other day that um, I believe it's eToro. They moved back their closing date. So we've seen a couple of these things like the like the MUDS top deal blow up in the final minutes. Now, we understand that there was also issues with 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 their top steel and, and they're not exactly apples to apples. But I'm just wondering what 
what you folks are thinking, and maybe uh, Christy, you know, what what some of these what some of these bankers and some of these sponsors are, are, are thinking right now if they've kind of gone into a little bit of a hibernation. Well, well, there's no doubt that you know the current noise uh, about specs, whether it's you know from a regulation standpoint or whatever. Um, or even the fact that, you know, where they're currently trading and how difficult redemptions have been. I mean, that is definitely for sure, I'm, I'm sure, weighed on um, some potential target companies, whether they choose to use a traditional IPR route versus a SPAC route. Um, the other thing, too, is you have to also consider which deals are getting sort of hung up as far as delays. Like if you look at the the crypto deals, for instance, uh, Bakht, right, which announced, uh, what was it, uh, early February? You know, they're going on what eight, eight, eight and a half months now. So you have to wonder if maybe they're getting sort of the double whammy of from the SEC of crypto scrutiny plus SPAC scrutiny. The other thing I would also note too is the international deals generally take a lot longer because of international regulations. Like so, for instance, Toro, you know, um, I think I believe they're based in Israel. Like you have to get clearance from the Israeli tax authority. So there's like a bunch of additional hoops you have to jump through. And the international deals are just a little bit more complex, so they should take a little bit more time. And also, when you're dealing with things of you know, complex ones like uh, Apex, right, which is the Northern Star deal, also very complex transactions. So they're they're going to take a while. Although that one is a very unusual. They, they they've had to delay their vote twice now, and you have to kind of wonder what's going on there. But um, yeah. Yeah, those are all good points. I did want to move on to uh, another topic I forgot to mention on the agenda, but I realized the last state of the markets was done in June right after uh, Pershing Square announced the UMG deal. And we were discussing that. So I figured we'd follow up because much has happened on that file. Obviously, the SEC did not like the UMG deal. That fell apart. It looks like the spark structure may be dead in the water. We'll see. But UMG did complete its incredibly successful IPO, which is a shame because, I mean, PSTH could have been a real big winner. And that seemingly is left for dead now, trading at 1970. Perhaps the market thinking a liquidation is highly likely. What do you guys think on the future of the Pershing Square SPAC and this potential FARC structure? Jeff, I'll leave you this one uh, to start with you. All righty. Well, um, yeah, no love lost for uh, for Pershing from me, uh, but but that's a personal opinion. Uh, primarily, the warrant was always too expensive, so for for us, we just we just considered it a non-starter. But that being said, I, I genuinely think that this tethers into some of the recent, I'd say, quiet period from, from announcements, rumors, uh, things of that nature. I think, I think Ackman made himself a perfect messenger to kill um, when, it, when it came to being vocal in, in the Reddit forums and whatnot. I, I think it sets you up for uh, further SEC scrutiny. So I don't, I don't know how smart that all was. Uh, I don't necessarily have great feelings because the captain of the ship essentially said, you know, that it's sinking. And he walked it back. Don't get me wrong. He did. But, I mean, the damage was done, in my opinion. It, it, so I, I I, didn't really have a great impression of that one from the get-go. I know there's a lot of a lot of folks out there who, who were, were beaten uh, to hell on that one. So uh, apologize for the negative sentiment because I know, I know that one's a sore subject for some people. Um, but it was an expensive warrant. 
end of the day. Um, the spark structure, uh, I, I'll say it again. Uh, I know I say it every time it comes up. I, I think once you start getting to the point where you need to be a contract attorney to understand your investments, you are you are branching into another category uh, that doesn't belong in this environment. The, this 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 fact structure, uh, while while it might need some modifications and further disclosures, net net has proven itself out over time, and everybody who wants to re recreate the wheel here uh, needs to do so in an educational forum, not one that a lot of people's money is wrapped up into. That's my personal opinion. Uh, I, I know Christy likes the new structures. I hate them. Uh, and I think most retail investors hate them. Give us, give us the nitty gritty uh, in detail in our face and let us make our choices. Don't make it a nuanced, long contract conversation. Uh, and, and just real quick to follow up on, on some of those extensions and those backlogs and whatnot at the SEC that happened and, and the, the potential for all of these facts out there to meet their targets. Last time I checked, we don't have any that have been refused the extension in the in the recent memory. So the idea that they won't get the extensions uh, in the COVID environment, in the the extra SEC scrutiny environment, uh, when they approach their their shareholders and say we need a three month, uh, I find that that almost impossible. I think they're all going to get extended. Uh, I think what we have here might be the boom of the boom. And we might never see another big chunk come in like they did. Uh, but I do see most of these being able to land targets, even if it takes an extended period of time. Uh, that's my two cents. And now a word from our sponsor, Accelerate. Do you want to diversify your investment portfolio while benefiting the planet? The Accelerate Carbon Negative Bitcoin ETF, symbol ABTC on the Toronto Stock Exchange, provides investors with exposure to Bitcoin while protecting the environment. Accelerate implements a global tree planting campaign to sequester carbon emissions and help fight climate change. Up to 10% of ABTC's 69 basis point management fee will be allocated to Accelerate's annual tree planting campaign. For each $1,000 invested in ABTC, an estimated one net ton of carbon dioxide is expected to be sequestered each year. Buy Bitcoin, save the planet. Find out more at investabtc.com. That makes a lot of sense. And with respect to <clears throat> Pershing, you mentioned the warrants were always overvalued. But I mean, those common shares trading at massive premium, upwards of 50% to trust value and I was never very happy about that. Never owned those shares uh, at all just because they were the most expensive. And then some stories came out, for example, one an institutional investor about how this retail investor basically put his life savings into call options on PSTH, which is just just wild. I mean, if you're a, an investor, just note that warrants and SPACs trading above NAV are highly speculative. And if you're trading you know, short-term derivatives, then that's an incredibly risky strategy and it could go to zero. So keep that in mind when speculating in derivatives and options. I just was mind blown by that. 
And uh, yeah, I just want to kind of give that warning to investors is it's probably not a good idea to do that. Now, speaking of Pershing Square, another reason why I was fairly bearish, it's at $4 billion in trust. And given that a business combination is tends to be three to five times trust value. So that re- really limited their target opportunity set to opportunities north of $10 billion, which as we all know, there aren't a ton of those outstanding. So I always thought the chance of success for Pershing Square was fairly low. And I got a lot of crap on Twitter from the so-called tauntards who are very bullish on it. But it's not like, um, you know, I want to brag about that. I, I just always want to warn investors not to pay too much of a premium for pre-deal SPACs and take these things into account. The other thing is the notion of Pershing Square being so large, having a massive target on its back. One topic that we did discuss last time is the notion of these lawsuits, of which uh, Bill Ackman utilized as an opportunity to perhaps absolve himself of the responsibility of getting a deal done and saying he could just liquidate it instead of getting a business combination done. So it seems like the lawsuit front has been quiet as of late, but happy to open that up for discussion. Christy, I see G, you got your hand up. What do you got to say? Two things. First thing, um, I got a DM that that I um, somebody who's listening, and he brings up a good point. He, he wants to know about SPACs versus the T-bill ARB play. I know that's something that that you can address. So I, I, I would like you to kind of touch on that briefly after I say my my Bill Ackman feelings. Um, I don't know him. So this is just, again, from wearing many hats, the way that I look at it. When when they announced the, the uh, Universal Music deal, a lot of people went absolutely crazy, thought it was a crappy deal. We're not really happy with it. Again, regardless of what people thought, the guy then went and purchased it in his other Pershing vehicles. And it wasn't like it was a deal he was just trying to cram into a a SPAC to get his promote, even though we all know he has a a different promote structure than most. But the guy put his money where his mouth was. And not only did he put his money where his mouth was, he was right. So um so I, I don't give him I don't make him wear a black eye for that. And and the second thing is this was a different spec. It, it was, as we know, it, it had its own issues. Being it, it was built so big that that his audience was very small of what he could get. But he also tried this whole spark thing, and you know, innovation is not easy. And he did it at a time where you know we had changes at the SEC, and and specs became the you know the whipping boy of, of financial media. And I'm curious what this will do now with things like Spinning Eagle, um, the Sloan deal, because even though it's it's different, it's, it has some similarities. So if you want to t- touch on that about the Spark and, and the Spinning Eagle and just different spec structures we may or may not see. And and then, Julian, when you when you can, maybe just touch upon the, the T-bill arm. Thank you. Sure. I'll, I'll touch on that arbitrage play first. I did want to pass it off to Christy to get your thoughts on, on the Spark structure, the future potential of it, or maybe it's dead, maybe it's not, and what you think the future of the existing lawsuits on Pershing Square and a couple other SPACs, uh, what the future of that is. 
Yeah, I, I think I come down uh, closer to uh, Guru on his thoughts with um, Ackman. A couple things. He is an innovator. If you remember back in June of 2020 when he came out with his structure, you know, he said that you know he was only going to get promote unless the the share performed 20% above IPO issuance. And that was pretty novel. Um, he was trying to innovate and innovate for the right reasons by aligning his promote with investors. Um, so it, it was certainly very curious when the lawsuits did come out. Now, I don't know if anybody saw, but you know the law community <laughs> was up in arms, so much so that they put out a statement saying that they believed the lawsuits uh, were I don't know the correct legal term, so forgive me if I'm getting it wrong, but uh, wholly inaccurate and uh, without merit. And just just as an aside, to get lawyers to agree on anything is like nearly impossible. <laughs> and they somehow got 49 law firms to agree on a statement, which I can only imagine the rewrites that went into it. But you know that's that's a that's a big thing. And and ever since then, like you haven't heard a peep from the lawyers Jackson and Morley who brought those suits. Um, in fact, I think a couple of days prior to that statement from the lawyers, you know, Jackson and Morley were, had gone into the press and said they were planning on filing dozens of lawsuits. Well, that stopped pretty quick. You know, they had 49 law firms basically tell them they were wrong. But going back to Ackman, I mean, those lawsuits though, I'm sure they're still ongoing. The, the, the problem for him is, and in particular to our legal system, is it, it's going to get tied up in court. Right. And what they can do is appeal it. But then once you appeal it, it, it'll probably drag on another year. And as we all know, there's there's a shot clock with specs. Um, and so I, I think Ackman looked at this and said, well, either way, I'm going to have to liquidate. Right. Because I'm going to run out of time regardless. But at least with the spark structure, people will have an additional security. I, I, I do think he definitely wanted to try the spark structure for sure. And I'm sure it does look convenient. But if you're an investor, I mean, would you prefer to just liquidate or, or would you be able to or, or would you prefer to liquidate and get something else for it on top of it? I mean, it seems like a bad situation regardless, but at least, uh, you know, you'll, you'll get a kicker via the spark. Um, do I think it'll be approved? That's that's going to be, I think, challenging given the current SEC. Um, you know, we'll see. But, you know, as we've seen, it's it's a challenging environment right now for sure. The aspect of the spark structure I found find most interesting with respect to its potential future is how do you get these things into the market? Like on Pershing Square, they're going to spin it off and you got to think what's going to be the value of that spark. So a spark is basically an option, a call option on getting a deal done in the future which is basically embedded in each SPAC common share out there because each SPAC common share can be effectively viewed as a T-bill with a two-year term or lower, plus a call option on getting a good deal done. And given that you know nearly 99% of pre-deal SPACs are trading at a discount to NAV, to me, that implies that the market values that potential spark at zero, right? Or if you just look at Pershing Square SPAC, it's trading 1970 with the NAV of something around there. So that also indicates to me, you know, what's the price of this spark going to be? I've heard high estimates, but I'm much less bullish on it than those other people. Guru, you did mention the SPAC T-Bell ARB play 
instead of getting into the details on that, because I do want to touch on one fascinating topic, the whole meme stock, low float, short squeeze into redemption. I do want to spend the last five minutes prior to questions on that. So if anyone's interested on the ARB side, just Google search the art of SPAC arbitrage. And that'll explain it all. It's a guidebook on how to do the SPAC arbitrage. So let's get into one of the funnest and most interesting topics I find. It's just a fascinating market dynamic that is a real head scratcher for anyone who looks at it, but it's still fun, is the whole meme stock, low float, short squeeze. We've seen some of these just go crazy. These plays seem to attract speculators like bees to honey in that they just can't help themselves but to participate. So the way that it works is once a SPAC discloses they've had high redemptions, generally over 90%, that indicates that the float is very low. And some of them are like, you know, a million shares or less. So very easy to manipulate. Many speculators believe that there is a short squeeze potential in them. And you've seen explosive gains in some of these stocks can trade north of 20 or even $30 per share. And we have seen even greater and they're incredibly volatile and risky. But generally, when you think about a SPAC deal in which nearly everyone wants their money back, that indicates that it's low quality and should trade poorly. And that's what it makes it so fascinating is the opposite happens is you've seen explosive returns for those who didn't redeem. So I do want to open up this discussion. I'll pass along to you, G. What are your thoughts on DSPACs as meme stock plays? Yeah, it's it's wild. Usually my comment is, why couldn't it have happened to one of the many I'm long? And the answer is probably (laughs) because... I'm not in a deal that's going to have a 90% redemption. So, but but the but the other side of that is I have an IRA that's filled with with warrants that I paid too much for them. Um, I was buying some of these warrants near two dollars, and it was after that that I spoke with SPAC warrants Jeff and and realized that I actually was FOMOing and chasing because it was something that I wasn't incredibly astute with. Um, I typically I'm just a common guy. But um, one of the things that I want to talk to you about and get Jeff involved is I did own warrants in one of these that that went wild. And it was it was the OnPed, O-N-P-D. And the the warrants woke up and the common went went hyperbolic, hyperbaric in, in, in volume and sound and everything. And it was trading over 20. And we never saw the warrants really react. And we all know who've been at this long enough, they didn't react because the same reason the quantum scape didn't react because there wasn't an underlying registration and there was really no ARB and there was no no vehicle or, or means to exercise and, 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 and get unlock the value. But even with that being the way it was, you would have thought in the older days, there's no way that this warrant would have been trading in the with a three handle with the common you know, up almost double digits up in the 20s. So I I don't really like to trade meme stocks. I'm an opportunist. If I see if I see a trade, I may take a quick trade. But these are these mostly have been SPACs that I've stayed away from or got out before the redemption. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And most people can notice the gap so large you could drive a truck through it. 
on these DSPAC meme stocks and the underlying warrants that don't react nearly as much, if at all. And it really lays to rest the efficient markets hypothesis. If you believed in it, it's hard to lend any credence to it these days, just given those massive inefficiencies. Jeff, what are your thoughts on the warrants as these DSPAC meme plays occur? Well, we we actually have been in several of them. Um, I will say you'll see a delayed reaction as well as a delayed retraction of that price afterwards. So somewhat more resilient. Um, I'm going to say they're your midterm strategy. Uh, Your options are still going to be your better play on a lot of these um, where they're available. Uh, In a few cases, they're not available, in which case we're looking at the warrants. Um, It's not that we don't want to be in the common. We just typically play the warrants more. So in the in the case of a lot of these, you're right with no registration on the books. There's no ability to exercise. Uh, The speculation has to be uh, tempered to a degree. It does still rise inherently uh, as the common goes explosive and parabolic. Uh, but it's not gonna it's not gonna follow it intrinsically as it normally would for for a lot of reasons, but primarily just because you can't you can't exercise them uh, right right then they're just a trading vehicle. So it is actually an effect of the efficient markets because knowing that that isn't exercisable, it can't reach that value. Uh, there's a limitation that prevents it. So um, in a lot of the meme ones. Uh, you know, I, I say what the memes taketh, the memes giveth. Uh, we lost an incredible amount of volume uh, last year and, and over the last six months to meme plays and other speculation plays uh, in, in completely different environments. And so if what brings the eyeballs and the volatility and the volume back into our space is this DSPAC play, this this technical mechanism of of squeezing um, outside short interest plays with with the the high redemptions leaving almost no float, and then you you couple that with it only taking ten thousand people with ten thousand bucks to make a hundred million dollars in the kitty uh, moving these guys. So social media is is a major catalyst when you've got quite a few more than 10,000 eyeballs on almost all of these trades. Uh, and then you throw in Wall Street bets and stuff like that. So, no, I, I find it's a great catalyst for the moment. And, and we've we've actually been able to capitalize on it pretty effectively. It's It has changed a little bit of the strategy where, where you're doing, a, a, what was it, the arbitrage withdrawal, the, the redemption withdrawal. Uh, we're, we're actually changing... Our strategy on a few, if they are underperforming, um, we'll, we'll hold them through now uh, with the anticipation that that even one of three that gets gets popped in that squeeze benefits the whole lot of them. So uh, it's been effective for us at this point. But but no, we're, we're very encouraging of the entire thing. It, it returns volume to the space. And at the end of the day, that's what's required to really make all of these move. And we're still heavily under where we were a year ago. Um, so we, we would like to see the common shares on the pre-DA trade several hundred million a day, and we're not back to that yet. So when we see that, I think we'll see some parabolic moves on everything. That's a good point in that it is very 
odd that's what's happening, but nonetheless, it is beneficial to the market in terms of bringing participants back in. So if anyone has a question, please raise your hand and we'll get to it in about a minute here. I just wanted to open up the discussion topic to Christy. What do you think? Do you think this meme stock, short squeeze, high redemption play, will those continue in the future? I don't think they will continue in the future. I think they're very dangerous. I really don't like them. I think people will get hurt for sure. You also have to consider whether the original unit had uh, a right in it because those right shares convert to closing and they provide additional liquidity and it generally brings the price down pretty quick. However, having said that, I, I, I did want to point out one thing. It's not just the low float stocks uh, that are sort of trading up at closing. Like I know I, I referenced this to Ajit, I believe, uh, yesterday. But like, if you look at Vector Acquisition Corp, or even the most recent case was um, TPG Pace, which combined with Nerdy, I mean, both were trading around cash and trust value heading into the vote. And you would think that that would be a disaster, right? Like you would think that would have, they would have heavy redemptions and that, you know, usually if it's trading at or near trust going into vote, it's probably going to trade down post-close. But like, if you look at Nerdy, I think it's up over 11 today uh, and it was trading close to 10 going into the vote. They haven't released their redemption figures, but I, I suspect it's probably something like you know fifty or sixty percent, which is still significant. But then, if you look at Vector Acquisition Corp, right, which again trading near trust, heading into a vote, and I thought, up, oh, they're going to have a ton of redemptions. This is going to be bad. Um, but no, then they disclosed they only had three percent redemptions, and it subsequently, in like a week, ended up trading over twenty. It's since come down to fourteen, but still, uh, you know, trading at fourteen is a home run. Um, so it's it's just interesting what's going on right now. I think I think it's partly low float for some of these, but I think also long only is just waiting out the vote, which is very different than in the past where they would buy ahead of a vote, which would usually you know, create demand to get the share price up. Um, so it was trading above that cash and trust value. I, I just think there's no incentive to take the risk out of vote anymore. And so they're waiting till post-close and then buying. Yeah, that is an interesting dynamic. And the other thing is the explosive DSPAC share price performance could have the effect of some sponsor promote being uh, in the money and being able to uh, convert given some are performance based. G, do you have uh, another point you'd like to say? Yeah, just that be, even before the SPAC became part of the meme um, culture, we we saw um, the deal that's now called um, the symbol is Skin, S-K-I-N. I, I owned it. It didn't look good going into the vote. I, I sold my shares. I actually bought some puts, and I was dead wrong. Um, we we saw what happened. The company merged, and like Christy said, I, I think the long onlys were sitting there waiting for the vote. It did not look like it was going to be a good vote. It looked like there could have been some redemptions, and um, you know the, the trade went against me. Again, I tell people, you know, I win, I lose. Things happen, but that was one of them that that really kind of opened my eyes to the turn and, and, and the new evolution of, of some ways that some of these specs trade and play. Yeah, that's a good point. This market is constantly evolving. So I do want to invite Greg up for a question. Greg, what's on your mind? Oh, thanks a lot. appreciate you hosting the call. I've got two quick questions. Um, is it okay if I ask you a question specifically about your fund? Sure. Okay, so I'm invested in your fund, and just curious, you know, what your strategy is now. Are you are you primarily long term looking for 
the best of picking the best of the best, or are you also trying to capture some of this arbitrage on these quick, you know, low flow DSPACs? So we've utilized the opportunity to really high grade. I did disclose, I believe, uh, last week or a few days ago, we've been buying the social capital biotech SPACs in the 970s. I think that's a great yield play in addition to high upside optionality. Uh, he's obviously a sponsor with a track record of success. Plus, biotechs typically have the highest volatility, i.e. the option value is the greatest on those. Plus, been buying some uh, Michael Klein Churchill Capital units at a discount. And if you, everyone remembers from last year, our best SPAC investment ever was um, the CCIV Lucid SPAC units, which we bought at uh, $10, the IPO, and obviously monetized the warrants and the shares for a substantial gain. So I still like betting on high-quality sponsors with a track record of success, and we utilize this recent bear market to be able to add a bunch of those to the portfolio at what we see as very good prices. You're getting a good default yield to maturity. Uh, in the worst case scenario, i.e. a yield to worst, kind of 1% to 2%, a yield to expect a deal of 3 to 4%. And if they do announce something good, which I think has a, the potential, even though the market's priced, uh, they, the market's kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater. I think if the market was efficient, if we rewind back to Q1, where 100% of SPACs were at a premium to NAV, I thought that was extreme. Then we go six months later, 100% nearly 100% of SPACs are at a discount to NAV. I think that was extreme as well. I think a balanced market, you have a mix of both, some at a discount, some at a premium, because I think some sponsors do deserve a slight premium. But I digress. Yeah, I've been using this opportunity to really high grade into high quality sponsors at very attractive prices. So thanks for the question. I will get to Rich here. Rich, how can we help you? Yeah, so um, when the last round of quarterly reports came out, I noticed a uh, higher burn rate for uh, working capital through um, uh, reported. Uh, like, for example, I saw uh, the SoftBank SPAC had already burned through $2.3 million and took out an additional million-dollar loan uh, from the sponsor. And I was curious if you thought that these were deals falling through and then needed extra money or are these deals ramping up complex deals ramping up uh into close to being a close close business combination or a da sorry it's a great question anyone want to take a stab at rich's question with respect to uh increased spending at SPACs? yeah i'll give a shot um you have to consider uh the current environment we're in right now um dno insurance alone has gotten insanely expensive um and so you know, whereas maybe a year and a half ago, DNO insurance would be like two hundred thousand, um, it's now well over a million. The other thing, too, is you know, listen, there's in, there's inflation all across the street, uh, just the same as in like everyday life, um, and and uh, things are getting more expensive for sure. But but yeah, you know, typically it also has to do with how long they've been. Um, in the market looking, uh, I don't know which ones you're referencing. I think you mentioned the SoftBank one. I have to go back and look how long they've been on the market. But um, yeah, sometimes they'll have to bring on an extra advisor or something like that. Um, it also depends on which uh, legal firm you're hiring. Some some are incredibly expensive. Uh, you know, if they're representing uh, either the SPAC or the 
the sell side. Um, also, some of those expenses are negotiated um, as part of the deal. So you have to take all of that into consideration. I'm, I'm not as worried about it. Um, I, I just know that um, like the other, oh, the other thing too, this is an important point as well. In the, in the past, uh, interest rates were significantly higher. Like if you look back to, you know, pre-COVID, you know, the three and six month T-bills were earning something like one and a half percent. And that meant that these trusts would earn significantly more uh, interest income. And as you all know, uh, SPACs can use the interest income, the, like usually the only thing they can use, uh, the team can pull um, interest income out for is to pay taxes and franchise taxes. Well, uh, you know, the six month T-bill rate right now is extremely low. Most of these trusts are earning nothing, but they still have to pay taxes. And so where is those, ta- where is the money coming out of to pay those taxes? It's coming out of their working capital. Um, and so that's significantly eating into it as well. All right, great. Well, looks like we're out of time. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Rich, for the questions. Thanks, G SPAC Guru. Thanks, Jeff SPAC Warrens. And thanks, Christy SPAC Insider, for participating today. Appreciate all the unique insights and everything you do for the community. Super helpful. And thanks, everyone, for participating. It's great to have you out. Hopefully, you learned something today and have a fantastic weekend. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty expressed or implied is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.